Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Danielle DiMartino Booth joins us. She's the CEO and Chief Strategist at QI Research. Danielle, the market likes what your Fed Chairman Jay Powell had to say yesterday. What's your takeaway? Well, he didn't say much. Okay. I mean, <laughs> at the beginning, he kind of read a lot of his answers. I'm like, dude, you're still reading. Your, your statement's over. Quit reading already. <laughs> I thought that was weird. I Honestly, I listened oh, to I was it on Bloomberg Radio. And I thought... It like, was awkward. Why isn't this guy like taking a stand one way or the other? Why he, he even bother I mean, having the press like, conference if you're not going like to say anything? the dot plot. Oh, it's meaningless. You know, we've got all these employment reports and CPI reports before we get to December 12th and 13th. So disregard that. I mean, it was... It, it was. I'm, I'm like, dude. Do you know you're talking out loud? <laughs> you're like on TV. TV, right? Yeah. I mean, this. Dude, and, and and I think what was disappointing was that so many of the reporters asked the same regurgitated question. We reworded over and over. And I'm like, can somebody please take off the gag order and, and let somebody ask him about the balance sheet already? All right. Tell us about the balance sheet. What would you like to know about the balance sheet? Well, I mean, gosh, you've seen other deposits, um, liabilities. My mentor, Dr. Lacey Hunt. He always. I follow them every single week we're about to break underneath 15 trillion when the data hit tomorrow afternoon wait what do you say about Lacey hunt from hoisington right yeah he's my mentor oh so cool. he's, he's taught me how to, i mean every single week the fed's data comes out and it shows you li weekly liquidity on bank balance sheets and you've gone from just about 17 trillion to next week tomorrow afternoon you're going to break 15 trillion you've had two trillion dollars of liquidity sucked out of the system um because there's like a 1.5 multiple on every dollar of quantitative tightening shows up as $1.5 of liquidity pulling, being pulled out of the system, which is why your BCY Go functions on fire. Okay, you've <laughs> lost me and Paul already. I'm going to say BCY Go, that, 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 that's over. your bankruptcy function. Look, bankruptcy. It's, it, it's, um, companies rely on liquidity. And right now we're seeing banks continue to tighten lending standards. I mean, I'll be you know, up and ready on Monday morning for the senior loan officer survey, but the Dallas Fed has a more frequent lending survey and it's just got getting tighter and tighter and tighter everything we heard from capital one ally they're seeing normalization in in defaults and credit card delinquencies and auto defaults wait you said normalization doing air quotes with oh, your normalization fingers. air so quotes no that, one... that means that means it's going above subprime yeah so it's not contained to subprime i love to quote bernanke <laughs> um but it's not contained to subprime and that's what we're seeing we've seen about a 12 and a half fold increase of prime auto loans being downgraded into subprime territory based on where they're trading right now on bank balance sheets. We've never seen anything like this. And it's because yeah. when you put the rent on hold, the auto payment on hold, when you pay people $2,500 extra a month, when you put the mortgages on, everything went on hold. So we saw, and Moody's has done some good work on this, we saw insane levels of FICO score inflation right. during the pandemic. Yep. And now it's all coming back to bite because 
wages just aren't there and 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 layoffs are so is, i mean you've, you've your, got you've got continuing jobless claims up six weeks in a row north of 1.8 right. they're just on top of where they were in 2016. so is your biggest concern that the consumer is not nearly as strong as maybe we think it is well, I think the consumer is telling you they're not as strong. I mean, okay. if you looked inside of the final University of Michigan consumer sentiment print at the medium tercile and top tercile of earners, they're like, job cuts are coming. And it's the lowest tercile that doesn't see it coming. But we're seeing it come out in the data week after week after week. I was, I was talking to dailyjobcuts.com, the founder, and he's like, November's seasonally a quiet time. People don't fire people into Thanksgiving and, and, and the holidays. And he's like, it's out. They've come out of the gate. He's seen this 25 the, companies close in in two days. This is the Austrian hangover coming after all of that insane stimulus. S stimulus. It's, it's still going on. Remember that Keynes versus Hayek rap video? No. Well, from, look, I mean, from the great you, financial crisis. You've got you, you've got some some people are going to be paying their mortgage for the first time in December. That's how long FHA forbearance has been going since March of 2020. All right, I got a listener question here. Writing in. Um, did Danielle listen to the Druckenmiller interview with Paul Tudor Jones? Uh, Stan thinks rates are going higher because of an out-of-control debt profile of the U.S. Do you agree? I don't. No. I don't. I mean, we've been spending like drunken sailors since Reagan was in office. It's just, I think Wall Street wants a narrative right now. But you know, Reagan boosted spending on the military. Did. We were talking yesterday uh, to Paul's mentor, Cam Harvey from Duke, and he pointed out that mm -hmm. next year we're going to have interest payment costs of $900 billion. Yep. We're going to pay more to service our debt than we then do to fund the military. The military. Yep. Actually, we passed that up in the at the end of the fiscal year. It's about $685 billion for military, $808 billion fiscal year ended August 31 um, interest payment. So we've already we've already rounded that. And I, I the shame about the fiscal spending right now is it's not doing much. There's it's not creating anything. Like there's no Hoover Dam, there's no Holland Tunnel. There, there's the, so that little that's being coming. created. They're working like crazy out there. The people out in Jersey, right John Tucker? They were building like Oh yeah, New I mean, the number of those gigantic cranes by Amazing. the uh, Gateway okay, Project. So That's my question, I stand corrected. So, Yay, we're building a so, tunnel. Yeah, it, <laughs> it'll it be ready the in twenty years. We care about in, in I'm always, capital, on, the, I'm always on the bridge. Is going to LaGuardia. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, is recession in your scenario? In your outlook? I think I think recession starts the current quarter. Okay, this quarter Q4 2023. As of this morning's jobless claims data, the only state holdout right now that does not have rising continuing jobless claims year over year is Kentucky. Well, I mean, Florida, but that's that's a base effect from Hurricane Ian. So that's gonna go away here. But that's it. I mean, we, last, okay, so September 2022, there were zero states with rising continuing jobless claims. Now we got 50. Okay, so you have a recession in your outlook. How deep, how long? I think it's gonna last longer than we think because okay. we've pulled so much demand forward. We're seeing one furniture company after another go out of business that have been in business for a hundred years because we pulled so much demand yep. forward with all that I stimulus did, did. money. All right. That's the hangover, dude. It That's is a hangover. hangover. Yes. But it's not as funny as the movie. So, no. <laughs> so should the Fed, the uh, what should the Fed do here? I think, I think the Fed's on hold. I really okay. do. But again, it's about the balance sheet. Nobody's talking about Voldemort. I'm saying it out loud. It's about the balance sheet, people. It's real. Wow. The, wor the worry is that the Fed went too far, right? Yep. Because like Cam said, if you take out um, what are they, whatever they call it, rent equivalent, right. uh, inflation is below 2%. And our buddy Jay Hatfield from Infrastructure Capital, smart one. Uh, he's got his CPI 
dash R, where they replace the housing component with Case Shiller, and that's 1.3% year over year compared to the 4.3%. But everything's great in Dallas, right? Well, no. Actually, warn notices in the state of Texas have gone through the roof. Really? That's what's hard to believe, and it's no longer like super cheap to live there. So I mean, Austin's a cesspool of, of when it comes, it's it's residential real estate, ground zero. It's a mess. I love, right. I love a good. And I'm cesspool. a Longhorn, and I yeah. I mean I love I love Austin, but they overbuilt. They overbuilt, and there's and they don't have any infrastructure for the truck. But they have Lime scooters. That's all I care about. Bird Danielle DiMartino, you know? CEO and chief strategist, <laughs> QI Research. What could you do if your data was working for you, and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. A little bit of a uh, M&A trade in the theme park business, uh, Cedar Fair, Six Flags, they're getting together, all stock merger. Um, let's break it down a little bit. We can do that with Jody Laurie. She covers uh, uh, the entertainment companies for Bloomberg Intelligence from the credit side. Um so, Jody, thanks so much for joining us here. Boy, I'm looking at the balance sheets of these two companies. They're almost the exact same. Two and a half billion dollars of <laughs> debt, about 500 million of EBITDA. So they're both levered pretty highly at around five times leverage here. From your perspective, what's the rationale for putting these two companies together? Sure. So, Paul, I mean, I think I think it's a great question. Is that really at the end of the day, why are these companies joining? And I think it, it really comes down to the fact that the tailwinds that they experienced during the pandemic have sort of petered off. And now they're saying, what's next for these companies? They've experienced tremendous weather-related issues this year that have sort of marred their opportunity in, in um, benefiting from people spending on leisure. Wait, what and were the so, weather, what was, is it too hot? Yeah, well, so some places it was too hot, others it was too rainy, it was just, you know, a, a mix of storms and events that have happened. I mean, you look you look in the Southern California area and it was too hot and then there were floods and then it was rainy. And, and it's just, I mean, each of their calls other than this one today, which obviously was just focused on the M&A transaction, but the past two quarters, that was sort of the explanation behind it was we didn't do well or as well as expected and we didn't get as much um, season pass buyers because of the effects of weather. And I don't know if that's necessarily going to go away, but I think what they're hoping is the expansion of their footprint will sort of diversify them enough to make it so that weather isn't as much of an issue. I don't know if that's necessarily what I'd hang my hat on, but that's that's certainly their argument. Look at Disney. You look at Disney, they love their theme park business. Comcast loves its <laughs> universal theme park business. They're Both of those companies sure. are increasing dramatically their capital spending uh, in those businesses. Is that just the, the, a benefit of scale and that Six Flags and Cedar don't enjoy that same kind of scale? So this is one way to get there? 
Well, I would say that they definitely have a lot of scale, particularly Six Flags, maybe even some would argue too much scale. Uh, it's just it's a different business model when you're dealing with regional versus very focused theme parks, right? So Disney, like SeaWorld, benefits from having Florida, having Southern California. And so that, of course, helps them from a cash flow perspective, more consistency because they don't have to shut down for part of the year. Uh, for, for Six Flags and Cedar Fair, it's a little bit more regional. The type of customer is a little bit different. It's not as much destination. They're hoping to shift that a little bit. And you're certainly seeing that, you know, Cedar Fair does have hotels at some of their properties. And so I think that the thought process is, is that once you're a bit larger, you can more actively have a branding and, and maybe more of a presence everywhere you go. So if you're a card carrier of a Six Flags great adventure, you can go to any Six Flags, perhaps, maybe. Maybe that's the play, is that you know a customer can participate in any area. Wait, can I ask about the dreaded phrase, merger of equals? <laughs> I think they're saying this themselves. Like, they think it's a good idea mm -hmm. to spin that. Um, Daimler Chrysler said the same thing, and it was anything <laughs> but. I mean, what a load of BS. What, what's, who's, buying, who's buying whom here? Right. So so they structured the deal interestingly. So Cedar Fair is an LP or an MLP specifically, so a, a limited partnership right now. Uh, so they have unit holders. Six Flags is your standard C corporation. And the way that they structured it is that Cedar Fair will get 51.2% of the new company shares outstanding. And the reason why they did that is I think it, it sort of helps them to not trigger the change of control provision for bondholders, meaning bondholders can't then put back the bonds at 101 percent of par. And so that, of course, frees up some cash for the two companies. It makes it a really stock for stock transaction, except for the dividend that's that Six Flags shareholders get um, with the, the closure of the deal. And so I, I think it's an interesting structure. It makes it a little bit more um, beneficial for bondholders in some sense, particularly the Six Flags bondholders. We saw the bonds rally today. And that's a function of the fact that, you know, Cedar Fair does, to some extent, they've had better results, at least recently, and, and their business model has been a little bit more. Um, uh, right. Well, they it's, have. It's been stronger. So yeah. They have Cedar Point, which I grew up going to that in, the, uh, in Sandusky. <laughs> they have the Beast. It's Kings Island in Cincinnati. When I was a kid, that was the longest, the fastest, the tallest wooden roller coaster in the world. Uh, Jody, you've got, I'm guessing, uh, real amusement park experience. What are the best rides out there? What are the rides that, um, that roller coaster freaks are psyched about? Well, there are quite a few. <laughs> it's funny because I have this conversation a lot with, I'm going to name drop Ira Jersey, who sits in my little hubble in Princeton. Um, his his son is a roller coaster enthusiast. So we're constantly trading discussions about all the different roller coasters out there. So which um, ones are the did, best? <laughs> I mean, I'm a traditionalist. I, I still, I grew up, well, you know, grew up relative, you know, once it finally came out, the Batman, the original Batman ride, not, you know, that, that was in Great Adventure. I, I just always have a soft spot for that as well as for Steel Force, which is at Dorney Park. And so, I mean, those are just rides that I always went to just because it was a regional sort of feel. That said, I mean, you know, Disney obviously has its own sort of Space Mountain. 
Right. Um, well, they have Guardians Explain. of the Galaxy now, which was certainly an intense ride. <laughs> Definitely different. I mean, they, from an innovation standpoint, they certainly do uh, a different sort of innovation than yep. what you see at the three regional guys. All right, Jody, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Jody Lurie, credit right. analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, breaking down this uh, Cedar Fair and Six Flags deal. It's, it's a merger of equals, what they're calling it, but uh, trying to get a little bit of scale in that theme park business. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Darkening the door here is Doug Adams. He's global co-head of ECM, that would be Equity Capital Markets at Citibank, one of my former places of employ. Um, I used to run the the street with Tyler Dixon. We would do deals. One day he called me up and he says, hey, I just took down a bunch of this Clear Channel stock. Can you tell me what the radio business, how a radio company works? I was like, what? I mean, that's the kind of risk we would take back in the day. Maybe stupid risk. But anyway, Doug Adams does, a, I'm sure, a better job than Tyler. Uh, Doug, thanks so much for joining us here. Appreciate it. Talk to us about the... Um, Equity capital markets these days, it's a tough market, tough geopolitical issues. I'm sure the companies don't have a lot of confidence maybe in their forecasts or kind of just even the next couple of quarters. What are the kind of conversations you're having with clients these days about, you know, their capital uh, structure? I appreciate the opportunity to share our thoughts uh, with you. And and you're right, it's a a complicated market right now. Um, We're dealing with um, a number of issues globally. Uh, and there's a lot of uncertainty. And so clients are trying to manage their balance sheets, trying to manage their forecasts uh, through that time. Um, I do think um, we, were, we are expecting there to be some capital raising come in. There are companies that need to raise capital over the coming weeks and months. Um, but you know, as far as the IPO market, I think what we've seen in, in the performance, and you were just talking about it, um, some of the um, Aftermarket performance hasn't been as strong as folks had expected or anticipated. And so, um, in reality, we're probably waiting until 2024 until we start to see a bigger pipeline of uh, newly uh, issued public IPOs. So, um, does that mean it's going to, 2024 is going to be a better year than 2023 for IPOs? That's certainly what we're hoping (laughs) uh, at this point. I mean, it's been a... uh, What if we fall into a recession? Is it still, um, does it still look like it could be a good year for IPOs? There are a lot of companies lining up, um, and a lot of them have secular growth as opposed to being exposed to um, cyclical uh, aspects in their business. Um, the one thing that we have seen, and we're tracking you know, over a thousand companies privately, private companies wow. right now. Um, and you know, there's a lot of really interesting, really exciting companies. Um, the real question is, when is the right time for them to go public? When are they going to get the reception, both at the IPO, but importantly, um, are they going to see the aftermarket performance? And, and that's been the biggest struggle of the recent vintage. You know, I've, some of the deals that came public, um, Doug, after uh, Labor Day had what they call marquee investors. Or I'm not sure what the term is. I never had them in, in my deals. I just, whatever that top allocation was, I gave Fidelity twice that amount and I'm done. What are these marquee investors and how does that come into it? Is that important? Yeah, we, we refer to them today as kind of cornerstone yes, or that's anchor the term. investors. Yep, that's the term. Um, 
and you know, part of it is in a, in a market that's reopening, like we're going through, part of it is how do I de-risk a, de-risk a transaction? Okay. Um, and so those investors act in two things. One is they take some of the potential supply. And the second thing that they do is provide a validation for investors um, and give them confidence. Other, a broader group of investors that people have done more work, they've met the company privately early on, uh, and they're willing to go on the cover of a prospectus. And so that provides greater okay. validation in the market. So what's the, um, you know, where are we in terms of the private equity business and the private credit business? Because um, it seems like companies can stay private a lot longer. There's so many sources of capital for them. They don't need maybe to go public as much as maybe they did prior. Where are we in that continuum these days? Yeah. And so at City, we run our um, public and private capital raising um, all through our group uh, in, in equity capital markets. Um, and we are seeing that convergence, right? And so investors or companies are thinking about um, where do I raise capital? What are the alternatives in the private market? What are the alternatives in the public market? And how do I think about that? And you're right. You know, there are more alternatives today in the private market, but that's not a perfect market today either, mm-hmm. yep. uh, as we've seen. I think that the real question for companies is, is there strategic value in being public? Um, and what's the value? It, it helps in retention of employees. It helps that it's an acquisition currency. Uh, and for many companies, it helps from a vet branding event yep. for them. And so there are different reasons to go public uh, than just raising the capital at the time of the IPO. I mean, how much have you, well, when you're uh, looking at your employees, right, in your group, um, have you seen a shift from the amount of women and men you hire to take companies public and the amount of women and men you hire to give them money on the private side? I mean, you've been at City since like Nirvana, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. The band? Um, the band. Okay. You've been at City yeah. since the early 90s, right? <laughs> I have. Um, you know, in, in terms of where people are spending their time, you know, we've asked our team to really focus on uh, understanding what companies' needs are and then thinking about both pu- public market solutions as well as private market solution. And so the teams are versatile to be able to talk to clients about the different alternatives that exist. Uh, and that's one of the things that we've been really focused on is understanding the client and coming up with solutions that best fit their needs. You know, on the private, I know source of uh, IPOs uh, across the street, a private private financed, private equity finance companies, and you always are talking to your private equity uh, clients about kind of what their needs are. There haven't been a lot of IPO activity for several years now. I would think the backlog from the big private equity companies are like, guys, you give me a five minute window. I got to get some stuff out the door because I need some monetizations. I need to mark these things. I need some gains to show my LPs. Where is the backlog, you know, out there on the street these days? I think the... um there's no question private equity firms um, are, are evaluating their portfolio companies and trying to decide which are the right ones to exit in the public market and which are the right companies to exit in the private market. And they do that all the time. Yep. I think with a better functioning leveraged finance market, one of the things that has happened is the, the notion of a dual track process has become back in, in a viable alternatives for companies versus just having one alternative. Um, having, having multiple alternatives always help those sponsors. But you're right, they are under a lot of pressure to return capital to their LPs as they look to raise the next yeah, fund. exactly. So what, what's, it used to be back in the day, my day, we could take a company public with just a, a thought, uh, you know, an idea. Um, now you have to have revenue. You have to have profits. Uh, you have to have defendable franchises. It seems tougher and tougher. Where are you, where's the market now in terms of, if I wanted to bring my company public, what would you tell me I'd have to have? 
We, we focus on companies that are either profitable or a clear path to profitability in the near term. Um, and that's what investors want. When we're in a market that's reopening, you have to really open the market with you know, the highest quality companies. Rebuild the confidence that's been challenged over the last 24 months. Um, you know, one of the things going back to 2021, you know, we prior to 2021 or 2020, there was a argument that companies were staying private too long. Yep. And in 2021, everyone said companies are going public too early. And so finding that right balance, especially in a, a market that's recovering, it's not a straight line. And so starting with the strongest companies, rebuilding that confidence in the public markets, um, and then giving options to companies in terms of you know, when and how and, and, and how, how large to raise capital becomes important. Are there any sectors out there that you're seeing more or less demand from, from your clients? Hey, we want more energy or we want more tech or, you know, what are you hearing from your clients? The clients are focused on growth. Yeah, uh, and and quality of company. So I don't think it's necessarily uh, those two things specific. didn't used to be the same thing, right? Yeah. Growth and quality. And when you say quality, you mean like free cash flow, right? Or or profitability or path to profitability. People that have built a moat around their businesses and are differentiated. There's a lot of companies um, working on really interesting, as I mentioned earlier, you know, strategies and, and disrupting uh, traditional industries. But the real question is, have they proven that they can actually um, operate as a business as opposed to a plan in those in those areas. But um, we're seeing companies in certainly in the software space and mm -hmm. technology more broadly. We're seeing companies in the consumer space. Healthcare has been one of the most active yeah. spaces in the capital markets. But we're also seeing companies in financial services, uh, real estate and others trying to figure out when will be the right time to access the public market. Are hedge funds, where, where are the hedge funds in terms of buyers of IPOs or just new issues, how important are they to you know an underwriter like City? Yeah, um, look, all the investors, the active equity investors are important. So long only accounts, the mutual funds, hedge funds, um, all make up kind of the complexion of the investor base. And one of the things is we look at the IPOs that came post Labor Day, yep. um, it wasn't a demand issue. Yeah. Right? Those transactions were multiple times oversubscribed. You know, the challenge has been the aftermarket performance. And part of that is, and regardless of whether you're a hedge fund or a long only investor, you know, the average uh, or the typical um, active equity investor are trailing their indexes because the indexes have been dominated by a small number of stocks. Uh. And so if the stock isn't performing well, they can't chase that. Um, in the aftermarket, they have to cut their losses rather than Real, suffer. Because uh, I kept wondering, because I said, back in my day, I'd know where you're buying here, 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 how much you're buying. So if the stock does fall, I know you're coming in to buy more. But it seems like we didn't see that this year. Yeah. I think there's some technical factors and some fundamental factors. I think the technical factors is the underperformance by the active equity investor, investor relative to their benchmark. And yep. the fundamental challenge has been, you know, the Tenure has moved pretty yep. significantly yep. since Labor Day. So the cost of capital for these companies yep. has gone up significantly. All right, Doug, great stuff. Appreciate you taking a few minutes of your time to come across the street and talk to us. Doug Adams, he's co-head, global co-head of ECM for City. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. The Tape.
TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. There's a thing, Matt, in the healthcare business called Obesity Week. It used to be a quiet annual meeting of weight loss specialists and a few pharma reps. But over four days in Dallas this month, it became clear that the new obesity drugs are changing that along with everything else in their path. Lisa Jarvis joins us to break it down. Lisa is a columnist with Bloomberg Opinion covering biotech, healthcare, and the pharmaceutical biz. Um, Lisa, can you put into perspective what these GLP-1 drugs are? How impactful are they? Where are we going with this stuff? Because it came out of nowhere, and that's all anybody can talk about these days. Right. Thanks for having me. Well, yeah, they're taking the world by storm, that's for sure. Um, They've been used, this class of drugs has been used for a long time for diabetes. um, And, you know, a side effect was weight loss. And so they decided to amp that up and, you know, explore the drugs for for use just for weight loss. And the difference between what they can do and kind of all the older diet pills that existed is vast. You know, in the past, um, you know, basically what you could expect was at the most about 5% weight loss with some of these older diet pills. And it was often not sustainable. With uh, Wegovi, which is Novo Nordisk drug, and with Manjaro, which is Lily's drug, still not yet approved for weight loss, but expected to be by the end of this year. You know, you're looking at somewhere between 15, even up to 25%. Some of the newer drugs that are in the pipeline, you know, for segments of the population, up to 30% of their body weights. So it's it's pretty dramatic, um, and needless to say, and uh, it's really taken um, the world by storm. I just want to lose like 10 to 15 percent of my body weight. But um, apparently, uh, uh, sorry, Novo Nordisk has put the starter doses on hold because they just can't make enough. And we asked the CEO today, Lars Furegaard Jorgensen, you know, what are you going to do about the supply? He's so cagey about it. He's like, we have a plan, but I can't like tell you about it. Which is why if, if you're like boosting capacity at factories or if you're making it in a different country or like, why would you not be able to tell us about it? I don't get that. Yeah, I mean, it's been an ongoing struggle with all of these drugs. Um, the fact that they can't keep up with demand. I think the issue is less the actual ingredient in the drug itself and more the vials that they put it into. Um, and so they've been really, you're right, cagey about it and been really careful about allowing new people out of the drugs. The problem is, you know, there's this whole gray market of compounding, um, compounded pharmacies that are offering the drug. So people are starting on it buying it from kind of telehealth places, um, somewhat sketchy, I would say. And oh, yeah. Um, that, yeah and I, heard a, I heard a commercial yesterday on uh, Bloomberg Radio on Sirius XM, yes. Channel 119, and it was for what sounded like probably a pretty sketchy place, saying like, hey, call us up. We can charge this to your insurance. Trust us. <laughs> um, and I was thinking, cool, because it's $1,000 a month, right? Can they charge it, Lisa, to my insurance, or do I have to pay myself? Well, that's the thing with these drugs right now. Uh, Very few people are able to get them covered by insurance, um, you know, because insurers are worried about how much it's going to cost in the long term if everybody goes on them. And the idea is that you take them for life. Um, And, you know, that 
could be a significant burden to most plans, given the number of people in the U.S. who uh, are of a body weight where they would qualify for these drugs. Um, the When it comes to the telehealth, they're often charging less, probably because they're getting it from a different source. <laughs> and you're maybe taking it not in the pen form, um, and, and maybe you're having to inject the drug itself. It wouldn't be something I would recommend. I've written another column about that, <laughs> that I think most doctors would say, don't do that. Just hold off and try to try to get it from, you know, the real deal. This um, is, you know, Lars was telling us this morning, too, because I said, dude, I don't want like I don't care that much about stomach problems. I definitely don't want suicidal thoughts, which some <laughs> reports have said, you know, that's a possibility, a potential. And then I'm terrified of needles. And he said, you know, a lot of people like to go um, to the doctor once a week and get a shot. Is that is that possibly true? Like, I can't even get off my couch to go to the gym. I'm definitely not going to find time to go to the doctor. You know, I think so. Well, you don't have to go to the doctor. You do it at home yourself, just like you do with um, if, if you had diabetes, because um, the people who are taking Ozempic instead of Wegovy, Ozempic is the same drug, lower dose for di approved for diabetes. Um, but there's good news for you in the sense that there are pills that are in the works that, um, you know, could replace uh, the need for needles. The weight loss might not be quite as dramatic. We don't know yet, but um, but it could still be substantial. And some of those pills you might not even need to take as often as um, as the injection. So there's a lot of different things that are in development because obviously at a market that people are pegging at like $100 billion by 2030, everybody wow. wants to get on it. <laughs> so yeah is there any scenario like i was i was i was gonna ask you the size of the business but that's that's a big size is this always going to be or is this expected to always be a prescription uh type situation or will there be an over-the-counter option at some point i think i think we're going to stick to a prescription for the foreseeable future in the sense that people are going to want insurance to pay for it and oftentimes with over-the-counter that's not that's not uh, something that insurance always covers. Um, but, you know, especially as we start to see this drug, um, more data come out for the health outcomes. So, you know, we're talking about weight loss, but Novo has or offered some data showing that um, taking this drug can reduce the risk of heart attacks and strokes by 20%. That's substantial. There's a lot of other trials running trying to show other health benefits, um, whether that's, you know, chronic kidney disease, um, you know, NAF, which is a, a NASH, which is a fatty liver disease, or even addiction. So I think probably we're not going to see it over the counter. Um, and the market is just so potentially huge as a prescription drug. And it's kind of odd to think about this to be a drug you have to commit to for life. I mean, it's one thing if you're doing that for a disease or something that you have to, but this is well, more. On the other hand, dude, I'm committed to like Hagen Dazs and Heineken's for life, right? <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I I might even spend less on WeGoVi or Ozempic if I can, uh, or, or you know, I I don't know, like I don't know how much it's going to limit my um, cravings to drink alcohol, to eat sugary foods to smoke cigarettes, but apparently it helps Lisa with all those things. It so far, anecdotally, at least it seems to be helping with all those. And it's now being studied as for addiction. So whether that's alcohol, you know, other drugs, um, illicit drugs or other things, but you know, and we could think of sugar in that same way. I've talked to a lot of people who are taking these drugs and they just, 
most of them say almost instantly, like within the first 24 hours, they feel a change in the their wow. kind of brain signals telling them to eat. Um, and so I think some of the concern is more about making sure people are getting enough nutrition, to be honest with you, because for some people, their um, diet is so depressed that they just aren't, they're not craving, they're not craving Krispy Kreme anymore. That's the, the interesting thing is, uh, well, a couple things. Um, can this reduce fat only and not reduce muscle mass? And then also if people are smoking more weed, are they going to need this to counteract the munchies? <laughs> <laughs> well, fair enough. Although they might not desire the weed, to be honest with you, if they're taking the drug. So that's one thing. It's just hard. Everyone has a different experience with it. Some people like just lose their desire for, you know, whatever was their vice. Um, you so look just I think crestfallen, Matt. On that news. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I think I think there's a lot to a lot to we still just don't know, you know, about how long people are even going to want to, yeah. for example, not enjoy some of those things in life. I spoke with some doctors who said they have patients who just want to take a break because they want to go out to dinner and for their birthday and drink alcohol. have their cake and eat it too. <laughs> yeah. Or at least pause. But so, yeah, so there, there's sort of like a lot of discussion about what, how is this sustainable in the yep. long term? Could you take down the dose? Could you take breaks? You know, how could you, how could we think about what it looks like in the long term so that you can maintain that weight loss? And like you said, you know, thinking about the muscle mass too. And I'll just note the companies are also looking at ways of combining these right. drugs with drugs that help you sustain your muscle All mass. Right. So it could All be right, a whole see. new. I'm going to let, I'm going to let other people take the lead on this. I'm going to be a big time follower. Lisa Drivers, thanks so much for joining us. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's kind of continue that legal thing. Our next guest, Nouvelle Gonzalo, founder, Gonzalo Law Group. She joins us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Um, Where'd she get her JD? The, the Ohio State University. That's right. The Ohio State University in conjunction with Oxford University in England. Oh, so nice. the two, awesome. But yes, I love feel the like Ohio those State two team. are on the same level as well. <laughs> OSU they're and Oxford. Excellent. They're both excellent universities. Yeah. Exactly. Right, one, one has a better football team. One has a better football team, depending, depending upon right. how you define football. That's right. All right. Um, let's talk about Meta first because yes. they have been sued by California and like, I don't know, 47 other states. Talk about Harmful youth marketing. What's going? I mean, the stock. Nobody cares in the stock. Stocks up one hundred fifty-five percent. From a legal perspective, is there anything there? Oh my gracious! This is huge. This is an amazing case because you were looking at over forty-three uh, attorney generals from different states that are bringing this case against Meta, and we're talking about a platform that owns Facebook, Instagram, Messenger, WhatsApp. There's about four billion users Threads. worldwide. What's that? Threads. Okay. They're new, like. Twitter competitor, right? Threads. Ah, yeah, yes, yes. Really. So, you know, this is huge. Um, and we have not seen this type of bipartisan support with 43, you know, states going against them. But essentially what the issue is here, this is not only data privacy law, but this is data privacy law and children. Because essentially what the states are arguing is that, hey, you are intentionally harming children with how you're handling your platforms, the futures that you're putting in place. And there were memos, internal memos that were leaked from Meta 
into the public marketplace, and we found out that Meta was aware of the harm that some of its futures caused to children. And so now the states are in an uprising over this. So that's what we're doing. That's what we're watching with this case and watching the impact with it. And essentially, some of the main concerns, because you might say, okay, well, look, listen, isn't this just business as usual? You know, people want to, companies want to have platforms that their users want to be on. They want to make it user friendly. They want people to be engaging with it. So how is this that different? But the concern here is not just that, okay, we have an engaging platform, people are using it. But the concern here is that they have a platform that is specifically um, geared toward and working to psychologically hook kids. And so we say, okay, well, what futures are that? I mean, isn't it just kids, you know, online socializing with one another? But actually, we see the comparison-like future, the filters, they say, are promoting body dysmorphia and um, eating disorders. They're, you know, saying, oh, did you have that? <laughs> you no, no, that? I, have, I, I have none of that. I, what, I'm, what I'm fascinated by Look, there's a ton of studies that show us that mm -hmm. social media is in general toxic, but it's especially toxic to children, but so are lots and lots of other things. Hey, if our product is bad them. for you, right. well, I mean, yeah, cigarettes. but isn't this something yeah. parents are supposed to regulate with their kids' uh, So I, I was thinking exactly so, the same so, thing. So, and, and yeah. you know, to me, the bigger concern with Meta, I still call it Facebook, mm -hmm. is they and Google, Google just dominate online advertising. It seems like there's a little bit of an antitrust question. How are two companies driving, you know, the vast majority of ads on online? It seems there should be some competition in it that It does space. seem, I was Amazon. gonna ask you, Novell, mm -hmm. is this kind of a way in for prosecutors who have concerns about monopolistic behaviors, but just can't mm. seem to bust them on that? Kind of like, you know, when they were going after Al Capone, they wanted to get him for organized crime, and they act actually ended up getting him on tax evasion. Always taxes, right. Mm -hmm. right. Um, so I just wonder if they're trying to, if is this back a way door. for them to go in the back door mm -hmm. and maybe kind of uh, break up or minimize a little bit the power of someone like Meta? I'd say that it's possible, but it's not likely. And that's because they're not asking them to break up their companies. They're asking them to regulate how they're obtaining information on the users and to really comply with data privacy laws. And so that's a different question that we're asking. And so when we're saying, okay, you're doing psychological research on how to make sure things are engaging for children, how to make sure that you're hooking them, you have research that shows it's harming them, but then you say, hey, we're, you know what? we're not doing anything wrong. What's the problem here? This is a very similar to what we saw with the tobacco companies, what we saw with Big Pharma. And so we have to look at this really closely. It's not just a matter of, okay, right, parents need to regulate what the what the students are doing what the kids are doing but so but if you have the information you know what to regulate so so you lived in Europe for a long time yes Europeans seem to take the right oh, to yes. privacy laws much more yes. seriously GDPR. than we do in the United yes. States yes wouldn't those sort of things that say it's my data and I can control it and Facebook or for that matter Apple Google Amazon mm -hmm. can't be selling and reselling isn't that the, the choke point to generate some control over not only how these companies affect us, but specifically what we allow them to do with our minor children's data? 
Barry, that is an excellent question, and I couldn't agree more. What we're seeing in the United States is we take a lot of our privacy laws from the European model with the General Data Protection Regulation, or the GDPR. And so we're taking our laws a lot from that or kind of adopting our own set. But not but as strict. Uh, we're, we seem to be much looser than the Europeans, We're by right? state. So we'll see, you know, each state has their own sets of regulations, California, Illinois, and so forth. But um, we are looking at how they do things. And the reality is, yes, we have those regulations. Yes, we have it to protect. But if they're not being followed, then that's the problem. And that's what's being alleged here, that they're violating some of the children's data ah, protection laws. Okay. And so if that, and I will tell you, if they violated either the children's data protection uh, privacy laws or even any of our state ones, they absolutely most likely violated the global ones. Because anytime you have a user from the EU, any part of Europe, the GDPR comes into effect. Uh -huh. So I will tell you, it's most likely all also that the EU regulators are watching this case very closely because if they are in fact found to be in violation of privacy laws, consumer protection laws, then we're also going to see probably some issues abroad as well. What are the damages? If Meta loses the case, mm -hmm. what sort of options are, are going to take place? Is this going to be uh, them writing a big check? Or are they going to have to change how they do business? I think we'll see a variety of things. One of the things that ended up coming up is they were launching, getting ready to launch Instagram Kids. And so Instagram oh, Kids oh, was oh, a platform. <laughs> That's awful. A, a platform for children age 13 and under. Wow. And so you're talking about some of the most vulnerable parts of our population. Children's minds are not even developed yet. And so they were they did this and they were in works with it. Another memo was leaked. And when that was found out, over 40 uh, U.S. states went ahead and wrote Mark Zuckerberg and said, listen, please stop it. Don't do it. Don't move forward with it. And um, they did. They paused it. So we might see injunctions here. So a pause on work that they're doing or projects that are in the works. We might see a change in the platform modification. We'll probably see some disclosures, more disclosures, because you can't protect what you don't know is out there or happening to your child. So if you think, oh, what's the, what's the harm in letting them, you know, have their comparison-like future or put their filters on, but if you don't know that there's research that this harms your child and there's an intent or a problem, you can't regulate it. So right. you'll see disclosures. All right, Novell, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Novell Gonzalo, uh, founder of Gonzalo Law Group, uh, bringing us up to date on some of the legal challenges out there for Meta as somebody, anybody, in this case the state, trying to get a handle on some of the content that's being consumed out there, particularly by kids. Uh, so we'll stay on top of that. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.